Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. If you've been following the podcast for a while, you'll know that what we try to do at Head Start is bring you actionable expert advice you can learn from to grow and improve your race, hopefully with a bit of entertainment on the side. Well, today marks the first episode in a new way of helping you on your race director journey. Spotlight is a new type of episode where we go inside some of the most innovative, best-run races and race concepts to learn how the things we touch on in other episodes, like building a sponsorship portfolio, developing a grassroots marketing strategy, or elevating the race experience, actually work in practice when executed by some of the brightest leaders in the industry. And in our first Spotlight episode, we traveled to Charlotte, North Carolina, to see how race director Brian Mister has been reimagining the Urban 10K with his hugely successful Around the Crown race. In the short history of that event, Brian and his team have managed to build an event that is a masterclass in community engagement, practical inclusivity, sponsorship development, and grassroots marketing. And I hope you'll be as inspired by some of the initiatives undertaken by this amazing race as I have been getting to know more about it. This is truly a brilliant example of thoughtfully executing on a race concept with a clear mission in mind and a much-needed ray of sunshine in our times that great races can still be built from scratch and thrive even in today's challenging environment. So I hope you enjoy the chat. Before we get into all that, though, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to our amazing podcast sponsor, Run Sign Up, race director's favorite all-in-one technology solution for endurance and fundraising events. More than 26,000 in-person, virtual, and hybrid events use Run Signup's free and integrated solution to save time, grow their events, and raise more. And we'll be hearing a bit more from this great company a little later in the podcast. But now, let's dive into the amazing Around the Crown 10K with co-founder and race director, Brian Mister. Brian. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Where are you joining from today? I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. Fall has set in and it is beautiful here right now. Awesome. I'm guessing it's uh, pretty early for you out there. What time is it over there now? <laughs> <laughs> it is five in the morning right now. And I have awoken before the kids for once. And I will be able to get some things done before they wake up and get them ready for school. So pretty excited about that. <laughs> That's great. Do you do you usually get up this early? If I'm doing like work or running things, I totally will. If it's just for for no reason, I will sleep in until one of the kids jumps on me. But I, I feel like it's always easy to get up this early. I just never seem to set the alarm to do it and be productive. Uh, so it's I appreciate you waking me up this early today. Oh, you're very you're very welcome. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like twelve noon over here. I'm feeling comfortable on my fourth coffee. So I, I really don't know how you do it, being <laughs> up at this hour. So you are the um, the race director of Around the Crown 10K, a fantastic race that we're going to be talking a lot more about in a minute. And we're going to be dissecting some of the amazing stuff you're doing with it in just a sec. Before we do that, would you tell our listeners um, a little bit about yourself, sort of your background before starting the race and what you've been doing up until that point? Yeah. First, thank you for all the kind words. I appreciate it. My wife and I are having a lot of fun with it. So it's it's fun when we get to talk to people that understand racing and love it as much as we do. But yeah, we're uh, I'm, I'm originally from Salisbury, Maryland. So on the eastern shore of Maryland, um, came down here for college for, for UNC Charlotte, 
back in 2008, 2008 and fell in love with the city, um, got some uh, amazing jobs right after school and, and met an amazing woman um, and, and kind of got into the industry through a brewery, actually. I was working at a brewery and, uh, helping with marketing. That was the degree I got in college and started a little run club there called the Noda Brewing Run Club 11 years ago, probably. And then, gosh, did that for a few years and then went off to a place called the Whitewater Center or the U.S. National Whitewater Center where they do um, Olympic training for canoe and kayak. And they also have 50 miles of trail. So I was doing race directing out there for mountain biking and running and climbing and kayaking. And then from there, I was there for a few years having fun with that and then got back strictly to running with the Charlotte Marathon and uh, became marketing director there. Had some fun with that uh, for a few years again. And that's about when my wife and I started getting some uh, some itches and scratches to do our own thing with some of our own ideas. And it's about when um, Around the Crown was, was birthed. Yeah, around that time is when really started our family. And now we've got three little ones. So we've got a five-year-old, three-year-old, and one-year-old. Life is always on the move and always busy. And we, we love it. Awesome. So basically, you're, I guess, a marketing person by education, at least. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I had I say yeah, sure, because I had two colleges. I started at community college where I was going for drafting and design. And then I transferred to UNC Charlotte, where less than half of my credits transferred, where I thought I wanted to become an architect. And then I realized I didn't want to do that. And there was a lot of college involved in that. Um, so I switched to art, switched to computer science, ended with marketing. So I got, I got to try out a few things beforehand and realized throughout all of that, that I just enjoyed marketing for these things, marketing for art, marketing for the, the nerdy side of me and loving Apple products back then and all this other stuff. So ended with marketing and now I get to use what I learned there with, with racing, my, my kind of number one passion when it comes to hobbies. And your wife is also coming from marketing or sort of something similar to that? So she has a degree in fine art. So she's actually a painter by nature. Um, however, when she exited college, quickly realized there's unfortunately no money in painting unless you're really damn good at it. And um, she uh, quickly moved over to the digital side of, of that when it comes to branding and design and, and a lot of that on the Adobe suite of products and that. So she gets to now handle our, our brand and our design for Around the Crown. She makes all my stupid ideas look really good, is what I like to say typically, and she's pretty good at it. Yeah, that's what I thought I recalled, that basically she was helping out at Around the Crown in a really meaningful capacity, and brand, of all things, is a very meaningful thing to have a good person on, and you guys are sort of like working together on that. So for our listeners, those of you who've been following the podcast for a while, you know that most of the episodes we do are sort of themed around you know different aspects of the race that you can improve or look at and we bring on experts and stuff again and, and you know we discuss things around marketing and sponsorship and sustainability and operations and all kinds today's episode starting off with around the crown 10k which will be obvious why that is the case i think i just realized that it would be great to put the spotlight uh, and maybe that's what we start naming this episode on a couple of races who are actually executing lots of the stuff that we talk about really, really well. And it would be great to basically start looking at all of the things we've been discussing in previous podcasts, sort of like come together, the marketing, the branding, 
the sponsorship, how all of these things actually work together in the context of an actual race. And around the Crown 10K was really fascinating to me. I was researching races that we can, you know, like bring into this. And I think it's fascinating because, and the, the more I learn about it, the, the more impressed I am with all the work you've done and we'll go through it, because it is a 10K, right? It's not a marathon. It's not something particularly grand, I guess, from a racing point of view, right? It's not like a marquee type of like marathon or ultra or something. It's on the lower end of the distances that racing accommodates. But still, as we'll see, you have done an amazing job building this race as a platform around which lots of things basically come in and hook into it from sponsorship and community and and all kinds of stuff. I can see you sort of like blushing there. I'm going to stop with the compliments. I'm going to get straight (laughs) to it. Let's pick the story from the idea around around the Crown 10K and the research and the planning, basically. So you're there, your wife's there like a few years back. You're looking to do something on your own. How does that then lead to the idea of around the Crown 10K from a business planning point of view? Walk us through that a little bit. Again, thank you for all the kind words. That was, that was very sincere and nice. And yes, it definitely some some blushing and smiling on this end. It's a lot of hard work has gone into this. So again, it's just nice to hear people notice that. So yes, thank you so much. Yeah, getting this thing off the ground was hilarious and, and ridiculous at times. Um, so, the, so the main idea of our race and, and where we kind of had to start was we shut down the inner beltway uh, here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, Charlotte is one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. And um, it's when we had the idea, we were also fastest growing um, right behind like Austin and a couple other cities to just kind of give it some relationship and, and to other cities of what's going on. So to shut down inner beltway was on the level of absurd. So we had a friend that did something similar. He shut down streets in another part of the city to welcome the community together. It wasn't a race, but in our minds, it was much more similar to what we wanted to do than a race. It was it was a community gathering where they shut down streets to let people go play ping pong and hopscotch and how slow can you ride your bike on this line and things like that. It was called Open Streets and they have it, um, I think it started in Brazil maybe, um, and they have it in a couple other places. It's just this really cool idea. And we're like, oh, we kind of want to do that. But with running and some other adventures within it, what can that look like? And he worked for the city. So we went to him with this idea. And after a couple beers, he's like, this is a, this is a fun idea. This is really cool. What can we do with this? And he's like, let me, let me introduce you to the next person that you probably should talk to with the state level. And that those kind of conversations just kept happening. And no one really ever said no. They just kind of kept saying like, you should talk to this person next. You should talk to that person next. And as that process was going along, I mean, this, this probably took a year and a half to two years of these conversations where no one really seemed to feel like they had the full authority to say yes, but they also didn't want to say no. And we just kept kind of grabbing beers with people or grabbing coffee with people. And eventually it got to the point where we started looking for sponsorship and we started to really get a website together and we launched it. And it was one of those things where we're like, I, I guess we're ready to do this. Like, let's see what this looks like. I had told my my current work uh, where I was at with the Charlotte Marathon, like, hey, here's a here's a six month notice. The race is coming up, but I, I should be able to do both jobs. Like, I don't think it's going to be crazy. I don't really know what this looks like. And then we launched and like 1500 people signed up in the first week. And I went back to my job and I was like, I really apologize, guys. I, I'm 
I'm going to have to jump off this ledge and figure out what this looks like to really run a company. And I, I want to take this thing full steam. And, uh, you know, I, I apologize, but I'm going to, I'm going to jump off the cliff and see where I land. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the quick way of how it started. And the other side of that story, a little quick addition to that is the whole idea of shutting down the highway kind of started with, we were coming home one night and we were stuck in traffic on this highway. It was like Thursday night at 10 o'clock. We'd just gotten done with a concert. We, we didn't have kids yet. So we were out late and having a fun time. We were stuck in traffic. Yeah. Thursday, like at 10, it was like, why are we, why is there traffic right now? Honey, like I'm getting out of the car and I'm racing you home. And of course she told me no, thankfully. Um, but from then on, we had this idea of like, what if we did shut down the highway? Like, what would that look like to have runners out here? We started measuring out what the course could be. We started talking about where to start finish line at. What are the changes would we make from my background in trail running of some of the things that are in the, the trail running world that are not in the road running world. And that's kind of how a lot of it started. And, and from there, you quickly realize that if you're your own boss, you don't say no to yourself a lot. So these ideas start to come about and you just kind of run with them until the public tells you, no, in, in, in some kind of market research way, then you kind of just keep rolling with it. And that's really uh, how it started. It was, it was absurd. <laughs> Shutting down the highway was, I guess, as they say, it was a feature, not a bug. It's not something that you had to do to make your course work. It's something that you forced on the course because you thought it would be appealing to people. Was that the idea that basically the novelty of running on, on the highway is something that people would look forward to? Yeah. So that's a good question. So obviously we could have put a 5k, 10k, whatever distance we wanted to anywhere. Um, and I, I'm not sure if I didn't answer your question earlier about like why 10k. I know that we, had, we were going to talk about that a little bit, but this idea of this 10k and where we wanted it to go is we recognize that Charlotte and really North Carolina as a whole didn't have any major races in it. As in, there were some really high quality races, including like the Charlotte Marathon where I was working at and some other races, but they weren't gathering people like some of the other Southeast races that we were traveling to be that Cooper River Bridge Run in Charleston, um, Atlanta Peachtree uh, or Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta. Richmond's got some good ones uh, west of here and Nashville has some good ones. And we were really getting tired of traveling to these other locations because we loved our city so much. We wanted something to be there. So we thought to ourselves, like, we don't want to just do another race. And when I was at the Whitewater Center, again, who puts on some really high quality races, we were doing races every weekend, every other weekend of some sort. And it was, it was taxing. Um, so we wanted to create something where we had one race that sustained us throughout the year. So what would that look like from a revenue standpoint of from sponsorship and registration and, and um, expo and merchandise sales and all that? What would it, what would we need to do? And I think that's then where, all right, if we want a keystone race, what do we need to do to really draw the attention, the eye of the city beyond the runner. The runner is going to find the 5K, but the average Charlottean, how are they going to find this race? And how is this going to, and I say this in a positive way, how is this going to disrupt the the city? How is this going to disrupt the city or the day? And that's kind of how we got to this idea of like, gosh, it's it's about 3.1 miles or a 5K around this thing. Like, what if we did that and added a little bit more? And we know that 10Ks are growing and they have a high retention rate. Like, Let's look into that a little bit. I think that's that's really where it where it started on this idea of wanting a keystone race for the city that we love so much and where we were starting a family at. Yeah, and it's interesting because my my initial instinct from the stats, at least like pre-COVID stats that I've been following, would be that probably if you wanted to aim at 
growing a keystone race, you'd probably want to look at half marathon, probably. Like that was the distance that I had in mind was growing quite quickly. The half marathon already starts becoming a little bit more hardcore in terms of the distance that is involved. But you guys still chose the 10K. You're saying it's now the the, the fastest growing distance out there. So when we were, yeah, when we were looking into it, and I'm pretty sure these stats still hold out to look at this because the, the data point we go to is run sign up. They do a really good job of, they just put out their data data for Q3 2022. I think it still stands. I'll have to go back and look, you know, it's like a 40 or 50 page document, but that first year, those first couple of years, we were, we were reading that thing like a Bible. Um, and 10K didn't necessarily have the most people, like they might have for for uh, conversation's sake here, they might have two thousand people, whereas a half marathon has ten thousand. But next year they're going to have three thousand. Year after that they're going to have five thousand. So it wasn't quite getting to the levels of the half marathon, but the the landscape was a lot less competitive for us to come in to start another half marathon. Everyone's like, well, look, there's there's six in Charlotte already. Like, why do I need to do that? And I think one of the things I learned at the Charlotte marathon as well was the word marathon is is a little bit of a barrier of entry and it can be overwhelming for the average person. And that's who we wanted to talk to. We wanted to talk to someone who didn't have to train for months leading up to it, but also someone that if they wanted to put down a solid time and they really wanted to try it, something, we're going to give them a high quality race here and have some fun with it. And I think that's a lot of the reason we did it. And then the last thing we found too, through the the research we were doing is the retention rate of the 10 K was really high. If people do a half marathon, similar to my wife and I, we were trying to knock off one in every state. So once I hit West Virginia, I was moving on to Pennsylvania. I was moving on to New Jersey, whatever it might be. Um, and then with the 5k, those are at this point, they're almost kind of a dime a dozen. You can, you can pick one up every weekend if you want to, you can do 52 a year pretty easily. So yeah, maybe eventually we'll add that distance on two hours. I, I kind of doubt it, but we want the focus to be on the 10k and there just weren't many of them in North Carolina. I mean, when we debuted, we immediately became the largest 10K in the state, which was really cool to add that title onto it. It legitimizes us right away, but there there wasn't much competition for it. So it was nice to be able to add that to our tool belt as well of, of saying some larger things like that. We're the largest 10K in North Carolina. It just, it made us look a little bit stronger right away. And as people who run, uh, which is probably most of the audience here knows, for a place like Charlotte, a 10K course can take in quite a bit of the city if you want it to. I mean, it, it's a pretty long distance. You can travel around. You can you can map out a pretty nice course taking in lots of stuff with a 10K. Yeah, certainly. Um, you, you don't realize how small a city is until you start tra- traversing it by foot um, a, or, or bicycle even. And you realize like, oh God, I mean, the, again, going back to the marathon a little bit, like, Oh man, if we're going to fit 26 miles in this city, even Chicago or New York, it's like we got to go to every neighborhood possible to make this thing work. And when you think about it from a cost standpoint, too, of how many streets you have to shut down, how many police officers you have to bring in, how much fencing you have to bring in, then the 10K started looking even more appealing. Uh, however, the funny side of that is shutting down the highway is not cheap either. Um, so we, we end up having to back ourselves into that one, too. But um, yeah, that the 6.2 miles can add up really fast so we got to see the name of our race around the crown is because you run around the entire uptown or downtown area of charlotte and that's why we loved it so you run around it you see the whole city and then you dive into it and you're on the surface streets going through these the the massive buildings that are charlotte we we think we have a a beautiful skyline here so it's fun to be able to see it at a at a speed and an angle that you never get to see it except for this one day a year now 
one of the things that is, I think, that really stands out about this race when you start researching it or looking at the way you want it to be perceived through the website and, and other places, it sort of screams of being a race with a mission behind it. It's not just a 10K. It's, it's you know, beyond the brand being quite clear about how it wants to bring together the community. Everything that you do around it, some of the programs we'll go into in just a sec, like specific initiatives you have, seem to all come together behind a mission. When you started out, was there like a clear mission to the race? Is there now? And do you even have a mission statement, sort of like an actual formal mission statement about what what you're trying to do with the race? Yeah, for sure. That was, uh, I think, kind of goes back to that idea of we were talking about earlier with open streets, uh, where there seemed to be something more in it. There was more than just shutting down a, a street to disrupt it. It was, we want to do something grand for our city and how are we going to do that appropriately? And I think I think my wife can take a lot of this credit. I'm, I'm going to give her a lot of credit in that she was the one that was wanted to have a strong brand and wanted to have all these pieces. And we, I think that mixed in with my marketing background is that's how you start uh, a company is you, you have to have a brand, you have to have a mission, you have to have all this stuff. So, so our, our mission is the simple act of, of moving forward, regardless of your, your age, your race, your culture, your gender, um, your pace, and um, just moving Charlotte forward one step at a time. Um, so we, we try to look back at that um, or honestly look forward at that as much as we possibly can when we're creating some of these other, I'll call them events throughout the year because we we have our, our one race totally on Labor Day weekend each year, but we put on, we're getting ready to do a holiday hustle here in a couple weeks um, or like a kind of almost like a 12 days of Christmas type of style event where it's a scavenger hunt around the city. And it's another one of those things where we just want to get people out and get them active. And we're um, activating our sponsors through that. They're donating some of the gifts for it. So we're constantly going back to this this mission of moving Charlotte forward one step at a time. It's this guiding light that really helps us um, navigate where we want our race to go. And I think the other thing, it's it's different looking at it now, but I, I think I can comfortably say like it also helps us not always make decisions based on financials of sometimes there's going to be decisions that we make that may not make us the most money, but it's true to our mission. And if we stay true to that, we'd like to think, and it seems to be proving true that everything will eventually work out. You'll have partners or sponsors that come on that agree with that so much that maybe your registration costs should have been higher because it didn't make up fully for shutting down the highway or whatever that looks like. But when you have a partner that truly understands that or a sponsor that comes in and is able to do that or a beneficiary that you can give money to that then support you through volunteers, it, it all seems to work out. It's it's trusting in that mission and trusting in what you're doing is the right thing for the city. And I think we've realized that once you really start to ooze that and exemplify that, um, it, it attracts very similar people and they want to do that as well. And the, the the money will follow that that's needed to to do things like this. But if you kind of keep that mission in mind and keep that at the forefront, then it'll all kind of work itself out, which has been really fun to to witness somewhat from a front seat. Yeah, I, I credit uh, one of my earlier guests um, for this complete eye opener. Uh, Peter Abraham, we did a we did a whole episode on branding and mission statements, and and I have to say, like the more time that passes since that discussion. They more I realize 
how truly important having a brand and a mission statement is. He was actually um, mentioning a similar example to what you're saying, which is that, so he worked for a number of years for the um, LA Marathon. And he was mentioning that basically at some point they they sat down, they they looked at their mission statement, which at the time for them as well involved, you know, like community and other stuff. And basically with that guiding light, they started looking at what are we putting in our swag bag and what are we doing here and there? And, you know, like they had to drop some income, right? They had to disappoint some people, right? Because looking after the pennies is not always fully aligned with a mission statement. But in the long run, it does pay to stick with that because the cacophony that comes with, yeah, we're sort of about this, but, oh, you know, opportunistically, maybe we do this other initiative or something that doesn't fully tie in with that. It, I mean, I can't quite put my finger on on why that happens, but it's sort of the whole thing breaks apart. And And what I've seen is that great races, great organizations, great brands, they need to stick to their mission statement, even if it means not maximizing profits or or not doing other stuff. And your mission statement seems to sort of revolve quite a lot around inclusivity and other things, sustainability, which we'll get into. And inclusivity, I have to say, is something that we haven't touched on in the podcast too much. And I would love to hear from someone like yourself why you think inclusivity is so important in the industry and for races to basically foster and take to heart. Why is inclusivity that important to you? To touch back on a couple of things you said there, I was making some notes here on the side. Uh, one, I want to make sure I listen to that Peter Abraham uh, podcast after this too, just to hear that because LA Marathon is one that we have looked to for, from a brand standpoint. A lot of their races that they do underneath of that as well. With I think they work, if I remember correctly, I think they work a lot with MLB out there, uh, the Major League Baseball, and like do some pieces with the stadiums out there, but they have like the Rose Bowl 5K or half marathon or whatever it is. Yeah, they have Rose Bowl, yeah. And their brand is consistent throughout all the races. When you see it come out, you know it's under that. And it's clear that they've had a discussion about that. And I, I don't I can't say I know anyone there. I don't know Peter, but now I, I want to listen to this and, and learn a little bit more. I know you said he was previously there, so I'm curious to see where he's at now. But um that's definitely been one that we've looked to from a brand standpoint. Everything they've done, I've been on their website many, many times. So so kudos to them for taking that step back and analyzing their uh, their mission and their brand. Um, and then the other thing I'd say too, this is, I was just looking it up, a quote from my wife. I think, I forget when it was learned or, or where, but one of the things I think she's always said from a brand and from a mission standpoint was people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And I think if we look at a lot of the brands that we probably purchase from, from even just in the running industry in general, or, or, or sometimes I look to the cycling industry as well, I feel like one of the brands that has come up pretty big, and I, I we haven't talked about this before, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on it, but Tracksmith for me is one of those brands where I I don't know why I spend the money that I do on their product. It is, it is highly priced. Um, I don't have many products from them. I think I have one thing I got on sale and I got another one at the Chicago Expo, but I open up every one of their newsletters. I read all of their social media from beginning to end. It's a story every time. And I think they clearly have a why. They clearly have a mission. All of their products, the thread they choose, the why their hair looks a certain way, why they're doing a run club, blah, blah, blah. Like there's always a why behind it. And I and I eat it up every time. And I think that they're a brand that it's almost like I understand why the price point is there because I see how much time they're putting into it. The quality is is very good, but is it at the point of where their their price point is? I, I don't know, but 
the why, I can understand that. I'm not actually very familiar with that brand, but I can think of other brands that actually carry that. Through. I mean, you know, the obvious one, I guess, that people might know about is Patagonia, right? I mean, it's, it's I guess, yes. the epitome of mission-driven branding and like how everything comes together. It's the beauty of, of a strong brand that somehow you would justify it commanding a premium and you would just love it without exactly being able to put your finger on it. And it's so important for a race to be that. Yeah, for sure. And I agree with Patagonia. I mean, everything, I, anytime there's some kind of announcement from from Patagonia, I, I tune in and I'm all ears and I want to know the background of it. I want to see how the video is made and everything else. And They seem to be doing things right from the worn wear side of things that they have and where their money's going. And it's, yeah, it's it's fun to keep up with a company like that. But into in, inclusivity, sorry to to side rail us there for a second. I, um, but I, I love talking about the the why sometimes. Um, inclusivity. So so I'll move on to the next next brand that we work with and, and really love, and I think also has a why. And I think guided this was um, Brooks. So Brooks has this this run happy is their their motto, and. I don't, I'll, I'll probably mess this up a little bit, but they say something along the lines of, uh, we believe that a run can change a day, can change a life, can change a year, this and that. And, and in my mind, I read that as when we run, it makes us happy. And when we are happy, we are able to make just better decisions in life. I feel like when I get done a run, I'm a, I'm a better parent, I'm a better husband, I'm a better business person, I'm sure. And if I'm able to make better decisions in my life that then affect my the people around me in my city how great would it be if everyone felt that way that they had this this natural high of getting done a run and where could our city go where could our state go our country our world if we all felt that at all times and i think that's where a lot of this idea of inclusivity came in is like uh selfishly i'm so passionate about my city that i want the best for it at all times so if I could unlock this realm for everyone to think a little bit differently and and just be happy, where could our city go? And the more people that are able to get on that level, the better. Then I think the second part of that is if there are people that have different backgrounds than me for, for many different reasons, again, gender, race, culture, uh, speed at which they're running, what kind of other fun ideas are they going to bring to the table that I'm not thinking about that when we combine or when they combine with someone else, we have this brand new idea that's so exciting and can do some other things that we haven't thought about um, that I, I think that side of is just so interesting. So, so our idea of inclusivity with around the crown is, is um, what it comes back to and what we've kind of coined with it is we're really trying to work towards our start line, looking like our community. Um, and, and that goes again to the color of your skin, to the age, to the gender, um, to, to speed, um, to culture and, we're, we're really trying to work towards that. We know it's not something that we can we can force by any means, but we want to try to work towards being as inclusive as possible and learning along the way. And a lot of that comes to being just open to a conversation and maybe not fully understanding what to say the first time you get into those conversations, but admitting that and saying, I'm going to do my best to, to uh, stumble through this, but please let me know along the way what I've done wrong or said wrong and educate me from there. And hopefully we can both come out great on the other side. And we have met a lot of amazing people through that. And um, we do that in business and we do that personally. And I feel like it's 
already been eye-opening to see what it's done for our race, you know, beyond just personal with my wife and I, but what it's done for our race and some of the partnerships we've had and, and all of that. It's, it's been amazing. So you mentioned the, this idea of um, making the start line look like the community which is really important and it speaks to inclusivity. And lots of people uh, these days start thinking about inclusivity and lots of races pay kind of like lip service to that. But you guys have really put your money where your mouth is in terms of the stuff that like actual programs that you've rolled out that are doing some great stuff, some really fun stuff and some really business savvy stuff, I would say, around inclusivity. So let's take a closer look at a few of your initiatives. And let's start with First Timers Club, which, you know, I've seen with other races as well. It's like it's like an interesting concept. Do you want to talk us a little bit through that, what, what you were trying to do by introducing this First Timers Club, and also a little bit how it works, sort of the actual nitty-gritty of it? Yeah, so our features, or our First Timers Club with features, or features First Timers Club, they're the kind of sponsor that assists us with that. It's It's kind of like a a training plan on the next level. So we, we put out a training plan and we really wanted to do that. And that's available to anyone anyway. But we knew, again, this idea of inclusivity, that I think this knocks on the door of the pace side of things. Of Unfortunately, we do have to have a pace maximum with our race because we do shut down a highway, which we're still trying to work on with the city because we don't, we don't want that. So we're trying to change that. But for the time being, we want to try to help people get to that that pace, which is 1345 minute per mile, if they're not already there, or if they want to get to the next level, what does that look like? Um, so this first timers club is um, a 10 week program, which matches up with our, our training plan. And we meet, gosh, this past year, we met, I think, like six times. So like once a week or so at different run clubs, um, we meet for we have like a meet the pacers event where they can come out and meet their uh, the pacer, the person that's going to be hopefully running with them to get to them to their goal pace to run a loop around the city. Um, and we have pacers all the way from, I think it starts at like a sub seven pace to the 1345. So we have someone at that that last uh, kind of point as the caboose in the race. And they're our happiest person on course. They're the one that they're the biggest cheer and they're a, a good time to say the least. So this first timers club, they get not only do they get the training plan and they have this kind of dedicated service with our, um, we'll call her our head coach, Lisa. Uh, she heads up a um, company here called Forward Motion, which is just like a, um, a coaching service that I personally use. Um, but she also, she heads up a lot of that with a couple other um, coaches through through Forward Motion. And she's there for questioning all the time whenever we meet or, or one of the employees of Forward Motion and helping people out along the way of any questions they might have on race day. And and I think we all know what those those questions can be. It's not just necessarily how do I get faster, but it's like, what do I wear? What do I bring with me? Um, so we try to make it as open and inclusive and, and silly as we can. There's, there's no reason to be serious on something like this. Um, and then with that too, a lot of our sponsors step in and give them some extra pieces too. So, so features being the big one, they're a, um, a company here in Charlotte that's I think the leader in, in running socks in at least the nation and, and probably one of the top contenders in, in the, uh, the world, but they make some daggone good socks and they happen to be like two miles away from our start line for their headquarters. So they, they come in with some socks, they come out to a lot of the events as well. Um, and they help us push this out and get more people involved. And then our other sponsors are bringing in stuff like free dry needling at um, our Carolina sports clinic, uh, one of our other sponsors here. And um, so it's just everyone trying to, get people new to the running running world into this through different ways. But then the biggest thing we do too, is we try to break down that barrier of price um, as well. So we cut the price in half for this one. You do have to 
this program, you have to somewhat apply to it in that you send me your name and your email or your name and your date or date of birth. And I search it real quick on a, um, a couple websites to see if you've done any other races. And then we give it a, it's pretty much like a half price entry. So it's 20 bucks to get in. You get all this stuff for free. Again, it helps it break down that barrier of entry because it's not necessarily that these people might not have the money to do it. It's just, they'd rather use that money on something else because they don't necessarily have the, the the interest as much as they want to to get into running. They might want to use it to go out to eat that day instead. So we try to break that barrier down by offering it a half price while still holding them accountable. And then we meet with them. It's really a great time. The people that come through this program are, are wonderful. And, and honestly, they become lifelong customers, if you will, after that. And hopefully, we've gotten them into other races. They're moving on to the half marathon or, or whatever else they might want to do or into trail running or the next race. Um, a lot of times, we actually see that they sign up for it because they've never run a race before. And then within those 10 weeks, they actually sign up for another race before ours just to get used to it, which is pretty cool that by the time they actually get to our race, it's not their first race. Um, but they've come into this program and they've gotten so in love with the, this, this sport, this hobby that we, we, we are into that um, they sign up for another, which is super fun. So yeah, love the first timers program and, and excited to kind of keep that going for many years to come. The $20 discounted entry that I think is available to the first 100 uh, people who, who apply to the club, do you fill all those spots? So basically, do you get all of those discounted entries um, to be taken up? Surprisingly, uh, and, and transparently here, we do not. Um, we're working on like more ways to try to get this out to the right people. So the way that we're currently trying to market it through newsletter and social is like, tell your friends, because we know the people that we're most likely talking to are not first timers. They're, they're most likely, I mean, anyone in our email database is someone who's run our race. So clearly they've run a race before. So we're trying to market it to them to get it out to their friends, their family members that maybe haven't done a race before. Um, or maybe they've done like other forms of racing, but maybe they're into the cycling side of things or the swimming side of things and they want to try out running. So we're, we're, we fill up a lot of those slots, but not all of them. If anyone has any ideas, please reach out. I know um, I'll be giving my contact information at the end of this on how to reach out, but um, we, we want to fill those spots up. We want to get more people into the industry um, and, and into this community. So yeah, we're, we're working on what that looks like too. Each, each year we get more and more people with it and having honestly having features on board, they send it out now too to their database, um, which is much larger than ours. Um, that, that brings in a few more people, but we're still working to bring in more in. And then hopefully when we get to that level, we'll be at a point where we can say, you know what, the limit is no longer a hundred where we're up in this more, we can financially um, take on some more and figure that out. Part of my question was because I've been wondering myself, particularly since we've been through the pandemic and there's been all kinds of noise around how price sensitive the industry is and basically how much of a barrier really price uh, is. I mean, we all know that races as a sport has been becoming more popular you know, like some races have like really, really high entry fees. Now, $40 for an event of this magnitude where you get all of this amazing experience and stuff to go with it, I, I, I think is a, is a very, very good price. But do you get a sense that that's why I ask like how many people actually come and claim essentially the discounted entry, how much of a barrier really price is for people? Yeah, definitely agree on the prices of the industry. And I also understand it. Like, I, I agree that it's getting absurd, but I also see the other side of it where shirt prices are going up, metal prices are going up, police costs are going up. There's becoming new laws in different cities and states where you have to have X amount of fencing because of security reasons from, unfortunately, what we've seen at races and um, 
just insurance as well. Like it's all going up. So I understand why that price is going up, but um, I know something that we're trying to focus on. I think this goes back to why having a mission is, is super helpful and that being our guiding light sometimes is, is taking that to our sponsors and saying, Hey, we're really trying to keep our price at where it's at because we feel like it's, it's, it's pretty darn high already. And, and from a, yeah, and from an industry standpoint, yeah, we're we're right in the middle, if not on the lower end of, of pricing for our distance. But if you think of it from where else would you want to spend forty dollars? We want to try to make sure that we're still relevant to these people of of we're worth the money. So we're constantly um, talking to our sponsors about what that looks like. We're um, constantly trying to bring in new sponsors that do make sense and and fit with our mission mission and our vision, and making sure that price is not a barrier uh, of entry for our race. And um, we have a couple other programs that assist with things like that. And honestly, the runners help with that too. And I, uh, I'll kind of just guide us right into um, the pay what you can entry and, and what that looks like. But we'll, we'll get into more of what that is. But one of the things that offers is runners are available to pay for the next runner. So if at the end of their registration, they're paying their 40 bucks or their 45 or whatever it is, depending on when they're entering, they have the option to to pretty much pay it forward. And it's this program that we have called Pay What You Can Entry. And they're able to donate $5 or $10 or whatever it might be to help the next runner get in that maybe financially is not able to go out for a race. And they need to spend the money on getting new shoes. I know that we say running is very inclusive and, and that all you need is a new pair of shoes and a pair of shorts. But these days, the I know since I've been in the industry, the, a pair of running shoes has gone from an average of 100 maybe $110 to 160 180 bucks now. Yeah, shoes shoes are completely crazy. I, I I went out and bought it like a new pair like the other day after like three or four years on on ultras that have run down to the absolute sort of the sole. <laughs> and when I looked at the prices, particularly now with the new like you know like carbon this and that shoes, I'm like, what? Are you serious? Like, you know, like two hundred and fifty or something, or like two hundred for some shoes. I'm like, this is crazy. I, you're absolutely right. In fact, way beyond entry fees or whatever, like the $40 entry fee, the shoe is a hugely important cost for people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you want it. And and back to like the clothing too, even I know we were talking earlier about these amazing brands, but it, the price points have gone up on all that too. And again, it, it makes sense just of where we're at in the world today of prices going up, but um, it's it's not as inclusive, I think, sometimes as we would like it to be from a financial standpoint. As much as we've 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 touted that from a running standpoint, so if there are ways for companies and brands and races to help, and I think everyone's probably doing their own little part in different ways, and we may not know all of it, but that's our kind of small way of saying, all right, we have this pay what you can entry where you can do whatever price you want as long. The only thing, the only barrier there is we have a um, service charge that's part of our registration. I think it's like four bucks that has to be paid. But other than that, put in whatever amount you want. And then thankfully, our, our title sponsor, Truist, is able to pick up the the rest of that for us if it were there. What we found out is it's not even there anymore because other runners donate so much that they make up the difference of it where we haven't had to go to a sponsor to ask for that because these other runners have stepped in so much that they're paying for last year we that was one of the ones we we have to cap as well at 100 for right now but i think this year we're going to up it because we noticed people were were paying enough to to make that happen it's impressive of all of the many great things that you're doing through the race and i think first timers club is is amazing there's a few other things we'll touch on but pay what you can 
And the fact that other runners are sort of like paying it forward for people who may not be able to afford it is just about the most awesome thing I've seen in racing <laughs> in a long time. I think it's amazing because I, I totally see why people would do it. I would do it, I think, if I were to sign up for a race. It totally captures what you're trying to do with your mission statement, you know, like people helping other people do the race and sharing that experience. And it's just amazing to hear that it's working out also that well, that actually you have so much, so many funds come in from other runners that Truist, uh, which is a great sponsor to involve and, and a great way to involve them, actually, for people listening in, programs like this, people like really, really keen to put their name behind these kinds of programs in the community. And Truist is a bank, is a financial services company, right? Yeah, and they're headquartered here in Charlotte, um, which is which is great too. Uh, like 90% of our sponsors are here in Charlotte. And then I think it was, gosh, there was something else I was just thinking too with the, the pay what you can. The idea kind of came from one of our, our beneficiaries, which is a, um, they're called Carolina Farm Trust, and they put on a farm to a table dinner. And they had this this with one of their programs of one of the dinners they did. And oh, man, that's really cool. And we were talking to Truist a little bit about it and their their kind of marketing division. And we were like, oh man, let's let's kind of check this out and, and see what it looks like. And yeah, it's it's been... Great. We have a whole write-up on it on our on our website and through registration. There's a pretty big paragraph about it at the end of what this looks like, where it goes, what it does, and and I think the best part of it is is um, there's no there's no checking in, there's no checkpoint, there's no we don't verify anything. Honestly, this could be a college student who's just trying to get by or trying to beat the system and just wants to stick it to the man or whatever it is and. Honestly, they can do it. We we have no idea. We don't check in on it. I mean, uh, it, it's it's a hundred percent trust system. And then the other the the second part of that or the other side of that is no one knows who they are on race day. There's not a different bib. They don't get a different shirt. They're just another runner on race day. They're sweating with you up this hill that they hate just as much as you hate. And that's that. Like you you just never know who they are, and you don't. And that's it's it's just it's a it's such a beautiful thing. We 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 absolutely love it, and we're so thankful that Carolina Farm Trust did something like this that gave us this idea, and Truist was able to help it out with it. And then the thousands of runners that donate to this to make it all happen allows us to um, just kind of further that mission a little bit. It is exactly what you say. It is a beautiful thing. It is great that people put up the money for other people. It is great that. Keeping it honor-based, obviously, I mean, this has to be an honor system. You can't just be sort of like testing people. And the fact that people don't abuse it is great. The fact that on race day, everyone is sort of like running shoulder to shoulder without any, you know, like special this or that, obviously, like, I think you've done it the right way. Like, it's all it's sort of like, you know, like makes sense. And I think more people should look into this. And just again, to put the slightly kind of like bottom line spin on this, it's programs like this, because I know lots of people struggle with getting sponsorship. It's programs like this, when they align well with your race and the community, that bring in the the non-endemic sponsors like the banks, you know, like the, the financial services, the, the insurers, all of those guys. They want exactly to be involved in exactly these kinds of programs and to be seen to be involved in these kinds of programs. And for Truist in particular, there's another thing that you guys are doing with them, the training tours that we're going to get into in a sec. Just wrapping up on inclusivity, let's touch a little bit. We've, we're both parents. I'm a, my wife says I'm a little bit too involved sometimes <laughs> with the stroller division. I've always wanted to run with a stroller. 
I don't know how well that's going to work out, but I also see lots of races not offering that option. Oh, it's so fun. Have you done it? Yeah. Oh, I love, we've done it so much and we absolutely love it. I mean, we're, there's been races where we're definitely frowned upon with it. Uh, but then there's other races where you find your stroller people and you all run together the entire race. It, it it's, oh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump right into it. I mean, there's a couple things we're doing from like the family side of things. We have a kid's race there at expo. That's huge. I think it's, it's $10. Um, and they get a medal and they get a shirt and they get food and they get everything else. And there's a balloon arch and bubbles and, everything you would want a kid to have at a race and, and seeing the joy that they have. That's something that my wife has like fully taken over and she loves it. It's a, it's 0.277 miles around our expo, which is similar to a race that's on 277. So it's just a call out to that. And we have a blast with that. So that's like one version of getting the family involved and getting the kids involved. And the second version of that is for the younger ones that aren't able to run yet. We do a stroller division on race day. And as, as parents who have pushed many times, I, I, I think the most memorable one for me is I did the Cleveland half with our firstborn. So we only had one at the time. I think she was maybe like a year and a half. No, she was still drinking bottles, probably like nine months old or so. We got her up early in her PJ still. She fell back asleep in the stroller by the time we got to the start line. We put a bottle underneath and we ran with her. And then when she woke up, we gave her the bottle. It was like mile nine and she got done by the time we got to the finish line and she got her medal. And we were probably like one of three strollers at this multi-thousand person race and we're like man this is this is so cool like how can we take this to the next level and how why are we getting frowned upon because i understand like the flat tire side of it of like accidentally hitting someone in the back of the heel so what can we do to make this different and because our course is so unique that by mile one you're on a five lane highway they can get out of the way. So why don't we let them go first? So we have our stroller division go out five minutes before the rest of the racers. So they're actually ahead of like the elites and things like that. And then by the time the elites get to them, they're, yeah, they're on this five person, five lane highway where they can just pass on the left. So easily you have cops coming up saying, Hey, stroller to the right. And, and it's a, then it's a cheering division for these elites. And honestly, like we've, you know, we're not out there because we're getting bananas ready and who knows what else, but we've seen some video of, uh, we had a friend run out there with a GoPro last year and you can, you can see them chatting. Like the strollers are chatting with the elites saying like, ah, oh, you're doing great. Like good job. So it's for, for these elites, like they have, a, they have their own little like running cheer station with them, which is pretty cool. And same with the elites back to these parents that are pushing pretty hard. Um, and a little side tangent from that this year, we actually had a stroller break the tape this year um, and finish first because he got the five minute head start, but no one else was able to catch up to him within that 10 K and ran like a, something disgusting like a 32 minute 10k pushing a two-year-old in a stroller um yeah it was it was impressive um but this year we had like 140 register um 140 strollers register they go out like i was saying like five minutes beforehand and it's just a it's 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 just a ton of happiness and smiles going out and everyone cheers them on and it is so much fun and the kids love it um they a lot of times we give them a medal as well and it's it's just such a fun little addition to our race that as parents something we really wanted to do and there's there's really no pushback on it because once people realize they can pass them so easily or they'll uh, most of most people don't even catch them because of that little bit of a five minute head start on such a short distance race you typically don't even run into them unless you're at that elite level it's just a fun little addition and and if you're a race director listening in i would highly suggest it because man it is fun and it's uh, from a, a bottom line or revenue standpoint it's it's getting the whole family involved. It's getting the next generation involved. It's getting a new level of cheer stations involved. Um, and it allows both members, both parents um, to, to come out. So maybe mom can run hard that day, but dad's going to push the kids. 
And rather than sitting on the sideline, now the whole family's involved and the whole family kind of got it. And for us as parents, it was wanting to show our kids what we're into and what we love. And now they're totally into it. And it's, it's then the next step towards getting into the kids race and then hopefully their first 5k or whatever it might be. So it's, it's really cool. No, I think it's amazing. I mean, I I always thought that kids race is is an absolute must, and they're like super cute. But like stroller division, that's like mind blowingly cute. I don't think I don't think it can get any better than that. <laughs> we added cash prizes to it this year and like actual awards with it from a um one of our sponsors is a coffee company. So we figured for parents like what better prize than coffee. Um, so now there's like cash prizes with it. So we have some people coming out pretty fast. So not only do we have like you know, just everyone wanting to come out and push their kids out on a highway for the one time a year they can. But we've got some, we've got some sprinters coming out. We almost had the um, Guinness World Record broken this year by a female stroller pusher, which we didn't even know was a record until we looked it up afterwards of what the fastest time was. But um, it's it's fun to add some other levels to this too. Just to uh, sort of like uh, you know put my accountant hat on, does it create any additional? costs maybe with insurance or anything running like a dedicated stroller wave compared to just your the typical race good question um it has not no because we're on a highway and some of the other pieces that are involved in it and unfortunately some of the things that have happened in our industry over the past few years like boston the amount of insurance we have is ab- absurd already so adding that into it was not um, any additional costs on that end. The course is already shut down so early because we're shutting down a highway. Uh, we have to start shutting down about four hours before the race. So it's already shut down. So we're not paying extra for police or anything like that. Um, it's an added division in our, in our results. So you can sort by stroller. Really, there's not the only thing I, I was just thinking of that could be something funny to add to that is like, maybe an additional food cost because the kid takes an extra orange versus just one person taking the orange. But that's not not worth it at all to even think about when it comes to those line items in your P&L and all that good stuff. For so many of our podcast breaks, I keep talking about run signups, amazing email marketing suite, race day tools, custom websites, and so many other great run signup features helping race directors like you take their events to the next level. But there's one thing Run Sign Up does, a very important thing, I think, that I haven't touched on yet. Can you guess what that is? Well, Brian mentioned it early in the podcast when discussing his business research before launching his race. It is, of course, Run Sign Up's absolutely awesome Race Trends Report. If you're not familiar with the Race Trends Report, it is a treasure trove of statistics, data trends, and analysis on races and racers based on Run Sign Up's unparalleled data sample on race registrations. In it, You'll find detailed data on registration trends, pricing trends, stats on participation and repeat participation by event type and distance, data on participant demographics, and so much more that can help you get a better grasp on trends in the industry at large. For example, do you know what the average entry fee is for a race like yours? Or how that fee is trending year over year? Maybe you're thinking of increasing your prices. Well, you're not going to get the data you need to make an informed decision on that by just looking up a couple of nearby races or speaking to a couple of colleagues. You need to know the numbers. So many people use Run Sign Up Race Trends Report to understand where the market is, and you should too. The 2022 annual report is coming out this January, so mark your calendar for that. I certainly do. But I suggest you also go and take a look at the 2021 report in the meantime. There's always new types of data being added to the report, and it's a free, amazing resource for our industry you simply cannot afford to overlook. Many thanks to Brian for reminding me of that today. 
So to download the latest race trends report at any time, just go to runsignup.com forward slash trends. That's runsignup.com forward slash trends. It's totally free to download. You don't even have to give up your email like you do in some places. It's just one more thing Run Sign Up does to help our industry and all of you guys succeed. Okay, I'm really glad to have been able to share this with you. Now, let's get back to the episode. So, the other very important pillar to your mission and race is uh, sustainability, of course, which is another thing that has attracted quite a, quite a lot of attention in the industry. And, and fortunately, many more people are thinking harder about this and doing more. But I have to say, I think for a race of your size, I don't think, like a road race of your size, I don't think I've ever come across previously a coupless race. So you guys run coupless, which means that people have to basically carry their own cup to water stations. How does that work exactly? Like, I mean, I know how it works on trail races with the density those guys get. What about a road race of this size? How do you make this work? One, you mentioned it's a it's a popular topic. It's it's something that people want to be a part of. And, you, and the way that you described it earlier with inclusivity or DEI and all that is there's a lot of lip service out there right now for it of saying like, hey, we want to do this. And, and I think the term has become greenwashing in that like, we're sustainable, we're green, we're eco-friendly. And what does it take to... to put your money where your mouth is, like you were saying earlier. Um, so it was definitely something when we started this before we even had our first race and we were having these conversations, we wanted to make sure that we weren't doing that and we weren't doing it because it was the trendy thing. And I think then, this is like 2017 or 18, when we were starting to have these conversations, it wasn't as discussed as it is now. Um, so it was, it was nice to have it at our first race so that it wasn't something that we were converting to because it was trendy. It was something that people knew us from, from day one. And if we were going to convert to hundred percent recycled shirts or to a coupless race, it wasn't a hard transition for someone. It was just something that people knew us as the crunchy race. We were the, the hippies that happened to put on a race or whatever, however you wanted to look at it. Like there was never any kind of conversion from that because we had seen that issue in the past where a race wanted to become sustainable. So they were taking away this thing or they were adding that and, people would complain understandably. So it was really nice to be able to do that from the first race, which made it a lot easier for us from a marketing standpoint, from a communication standpoint. But when it comes to the coupless, so I'm trying to think if that's even the best word, the way that you just described it made me think, is there a better way to a better word we should use? So we're we're not necessarily coupless, we are paper coupless. Um, So at our water stations, we have a almost like a neoprene cup that is reusable. So people can totally carry their own water vessel um, and we'll refill that as well because we have that capability out there. But the majority of people use this um, cup. We use a company um, out of Florida called Hiccup or Hiccup Earth, I think is their their website. And it's like this uh, thick neoprene cup that you you pick it up from a water station just like you normally would. You take a drink of it and you throw it in the trash. But that is not actually a trash can. It's a receptacle to collect them. Hiccup comes to our race, they take those cups back and they take it to um, an industrial washing uh, or dishwasher, like at a hotel or something like that. And they wash them and get them ready for the next race. So um, it looks and feels just like a normal water station. The, um, the cost isn't much different and you're able to be a little bit better. And a lot of that, the, the cup side of it came into play one yes because my wife and I realized that we were crunchier than I think we knew when we started this thing. And then two, if we're going to be on a highway and you think about 
paper cups going all over a street. One of the things about really any highway is there's just like a natural wind that's always along an interstate because of the buildings that surround it and different pieces of it. So where are all these paper cups going to go once someone throws it? It's not going to just stay on that highway. It's going to go down into the city in different pieces. And, and we just hated the thought of that of like, so what could we change to do different if we're going to have a water station out on this this major highway? So that's where a lot of it came from. And uh, gosh, we, we've, we've loved it. And Hiccup has been great to work. It's amazing that they come to the race, kind of give us the cups, take them and go on to the next race. And they'll, they kind of make a, a little bit of a road trip out of it where they'll try to, um, knock out a few races, either in North Carolina or other States that may have races and, and line up kind of their fall schedule or whatever that might be. So they've made it really nice at the water stops. And then at the finish line, we typically have something different as well, because just a, a little six ounce cup of water after a 10 K in the kind of the summer of North Carolina is, is not enough. Um, so we found new ways each year to bring something different to the finish line. One year we worked with the, our water municipality um, to tap hydrants and filter them and have different vessels at the finish line to, to drink from this past year. We did canned water um, through the brewery that we work with. Uh, it was more of like a, a sparkling water. Um, we just purchased a water monster. Have you seen those before? I heard of those. Yeah. 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 Yep. So we just got a couple of that. We just got two of those. We'll probably need some more, but it's a, again, a start towards what we're trying to work with to be a, a little bit more sustainable, but kind of in conclusion, a lot of this came from what you mentioned is the trail side of things of this is what I worked in. This is what I, I love. And I, I run a lot of, of trail races and I love how they do it there. And when you're in the woods and you see a paper cup on the ground or in the desert or wherever you're running at, it just doesn't look natural. It doesn't look good. So I think the trail world got over to it a lot faster and it makes sense. So we're trying to bring that into the road world. And there, there are some other examples um, out there right now of, of really large races doing similar things. I don't think all the way to the coupless side of it, but they're doing, um, so I just did Chicago marathon this year to go up there from a um, research standpoint and they have a huge emphasis on composting all of their cups and not only do they compost them to make more soil, but from my understanding of what I was reading there was they turn them into different features, kind of like that reusable um, plastic that they make like uh, play sets out of and stuff like that. I think they make like benches out of them and different things with the cups and like the heat sheets and different things. There's a lady by the name of Tina Muir. She's doing some really cool stuff and she was kind of heading up a lot of their sustainability this year um, and making sure and almost holding them accountable. And they, they hired her to hold them accountable. Um, so she was trying to take things to the next level when it comes to composting things and, and different pieces of it. So it's, it's interesting to see what other races are doing out there, especially on the, on the West coast of the United States, big Sur um, international marathon out in California. They do some really cool things. So we've got, we've got a lot of people to look up to and there's always more that we can do, but um, it has been fun to really try to work towards being as sustainable as possible. It's an interesting idea now that you describe it, the whole hiccup arrangement, because basically you're saying from from the runner's point of view, nothing sort of changes. It's still, from their point of view, it, it looks like a disposable cup. I mean, they drink and then they dispose it, they dispose of it, but then hiccup just collect everything, rewashes them, and then they reuse them. Can you give people uh, listening in just a rough idea of like the cost side of this? Like how would it work for a race of X number of participants or something to bring this service to the race. Okay, I'll give you straight numbers and I can do the quick math on it here. I think it's pretty cheese, cheap, if not comparable to um, paper cups. So I think paper cups are somewhere around a penny each. It would sound reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. I think ours are somewhere around like nine cents a cup. And that's 
everything. Um, that's the delivery of it. That's the execution of it. That's everything. So yes, it's, I guess, a, from a percentage standpoint, it's nine times more. But when your starting cost is a penny and you're going from, uh, I don't know, $100 to $1,000, it's not a noticeable line item when it comes down to it. And the difference that you're making, I think, is completely worth it. And I, I'm saying all this and I can understand where someone would say, gosh, that's $900 where I could spend on something else or whatever it might be. I think that's where having that mission guiding things sometimes and and the availability of a sponsor to come in on this of of that like you're talking about earlier the insurance company or the healthcare company or the the bank this is an opportunity for them to to step in and say you know what this is our water stop sponsor and it's going to cost you $1500 like from a sponsorship standpoint I have a race of of you know more than 1000 people that's not a, a large number from a sponsorship cost um, and the fact that they get to be the one putting their name on the sustainable, really noticeable part of that day, it's a it's a good activation and a good selling point for a potential sponsor. Um, it just gives them that opportunity to activate on it versus just a name on a logo or a, sorry, a, a logo on a, a shirt or a logo on our website. It's that potential activation point. So just think of it that way of how can you purchase this thing and then how can you offer some amazing company a way to to do that if that's part of their their mantra and their mission. Yeah, I guess you're also saving on recycling costs and like sweeping costs and because they take care of everything. For a 10K, like around the crown, roughly how many cups per participant would you sort of uh, budget for? Like how many how many hiccups would you think you'll need for the entirety of, of the course? Yeah, so I think this year we did a total of 7,000 cups because we did two water stations. Um, and we had almost 5,000 register, which equaled out to about, 4,000 runners or so, a little bit more, I think. Um, what we recognize this year is we, we want to do two water stops, even though it's it's only 6.2 miles. It's When you're planning it, you don't know what weather's going to look like. And in the south here, like humidity and heat can add up pretty fast if a hurricane's on its way or whatever it might look like. So we try to give extra just in case, and it's worth paying that extra couple hundred dollars to, to make sure of it. What we did notice, though, is not many people take it at water stop one. I mean, it's a mile into our course, um, which is the first place or the last place we can offer it before the highway, because now police and, and department of transportation have asked that we don't do a water stop on the highway anymore because it's the setup and cleanup of that is a little hard. So the last place we can offer it before getting on the highway is at mile one. And at that point, runners just aren't needing it or wanting it yet. And I think a lot of people have recognized that what we're doing, what we're doing with the the coupless style and things like that, that they're bringing their own water or they're, they're planning to not have water until the finish line too. And that totally works out as well. So yeah, it's easier than you might think it is to, to switch to something like that. So let's switch gears a little bit and, and look at marketing. You're a marketing professional by background. You've focused quite religiously uh, on brand, which is a big component of marketing, uh, I guess, starting out. And you also have a very big focus on community. You're pulling together so many different running clubs and sponsors and local businesses. What kind of initiatives did you undertake on offline marketing? What kinds of things did you do, particularly earlier on in the race, to raise awareness around the race and get the community to to pick up on the new event. Yeah, and uh, I like that you added offline there because I, I think that we naturally go to what are you doing on your social, what are you doing on your website, what are you doing on videos and things like that. And we have a ton of fun with that too, but offline, 
we really try to show up in person as much as possible. One of the things that we recognized when we were launching this was a lot of people, when they launch a lot of races, when they launch registration, it, it is done all online of it's open, go ahead and register, do this and that. And it didn't feel much of, it didn't feel like much of a connection when we were asking someone for their money and you're getting a lot of it in, in that, in that first debut, because it's the cheapest and you're announcing it. So um, each year we've done some version of a launch party to say thank you for last year because it's typically pretty close to when we had race day we now push it back a little bit i think our race or our race is in september and now we're doing a launch party in january so it's a little bit separated but we do a a launch party where if you show up in person the first hundred people are getting a swag bag with uh, a bag of coffee in it a coffee mug in it a hat uh, your entry price is 25 bucks um and we do a little bit more with that and then it's typically at we, we typically do it at our the brewery sponsor that we have that has a run club. So then we all go running together and, and chat about everything that went well or didn't go well. And we address those issues in person um, versus doing it as a, as a keyboard warrior. And, and really a lot of times call that out before someone says, ah, you know, you did this thing wrong. You didn't have enough porter potties or water ran out or whatever it might be. And of, of really trying to address that and, and calling ourselves out in person saying, we screwed up. You're right. We're going to address that next year. Like, so sorry, we're learning as we go. Thank you for feedback. That's the only way we can grow kind of thing. And doing that in person versus over Instagram or Twitter or whatever is, uh, I feel like so much more meaningful. Um, and those people become part of your brand then. Um, and it's nice. So, so to get back to your question of offline stuff, doing a lot of in-person run clubs, we, when it really gets into the heat of it, like from the summer, I'd say from April, May to September, we're doing a run club a week, maybe two a week or so where we're going out and going to these different, and in, in Charlotte and in North Carolina, we have a, a ton of run clubs. They're always at breweries or at restaurants. Um, and there's multiple a night that we can go to. And some of them have, some of them have seven, eight people. And some of them, we have a run club here called Mad Miles. That's really impressive. Um, and they'll have 350 people every Tuesday. And then on Saturdays, they'll have 150 people. So we, we'll go out to that one pretty often there. They've become really good friends of ours. It's doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then another one that kind of comes to mind when when you were asking that question was uh, this year we actually did outdoor advertising with like a billboard on the highway. Um, so the month leading up to race day, we purchased a, a massive billboard on our inner beltway and it just said speed limit changing 50 to five on a race day. Um, so it, it gained a lot of attention. Um, and we weren't sure if it was something we needed to approve with the department of transportation or not, because it was a little like, is this a bad thing or not? Is this okay? It's a pretty smart idea. Yeah. 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 Um, I will say to get a billboard on the highway was not cheap. If we could have done it on the surface street, it probably would have saved us a lot of money, but it didn't have the same impact. And what was really cool is we then took that. uh, So the, so it was a four week contract that ended the day after our race. So that billboard was up on race day and the runners could see it. So we did a social media contest around it too. So we took the offline online and said, hey, person that takes the best picture with this race that says pretty much five is greater than 50 is is one of our little mottos of we think moving at five miles an hour is better than moving at 50 miles an hour. We had a social media contest where best selfie won a race entry the next year. So um, we had some fun with that. And um, we made sure like our drone photographers and videographers were getting some footage of that on race day too. So there's a couple things we definitely do offline that are just as different and unique uh, as some of the online stuff that we do. And really just trying to talk to the entire community um, 
and it's not always running based either, which makes it really fun um, of showing up to some of our beneficiaries of these farm to fork dinners and different events that they have, of making sure it's known that we're doing some cool stuff for the community. Yeah, I guess the thing you you were mentioning earlier, this tendency people have these days, or you know, when you when you mention marketing, the the thing that comes to mind first is online marketing, and lots of people do it, and you know, like lots of race director, you know, race directors these days are very, very comfortable around running their own paid marketing and stuff like that. And I guess the billboard, in a way, it's a traditional ad that aims to reach out to to a large number of people, which sort of is a little bit comparable to what you might do on paid marketing. I think the reason why why people are not doing as much grassroots stuff as you were mentioning with running clubs and you know like getting involved at that level with the community is perhaps the impression that it's not really scalable and basically you'll need to put a lot of effort into it and for what one might ask, right? I mean, what what do I get out of it? Did you ever think about this kind of like trade-off? Do you do you have any either any data or any like strong conviction around these grassroots type activities working out at, at a, just a strict ROI type level that they actually make sense for the time that you'll put into them and the money you'll have to put into them? Absolutely not. And I think that's the best part of it. We have no ROI, we have no trackability, and I think that's why a lot of people don't do it. Uh, is because we've gotten so used to online stuff giving you immediate results of you had 7,000 people look at your ad and then 700 of them clicked through to the website and then 70 of them registered. So you had a 1% return on this ad. And that was pretty good because the average is this. You don't have that with a billboard. You don't have that with a run club. And that's that's the best part of it is I have no idea if the ROI is there on a billboard. Uh, I I love them. I think they're super fun. I think it validates your brand when you have a billboard on the highway that you're running on because the other players up there are Coca-Cola and Truist and Allstate Insurance and these other ones. And then we're the little guy that happens to be able to barely piece together enough money to get our marketing up there for four weeks. And it it validates us that way and I think shows the community that we're legit and we want to we wanna make a difference. And I think that has to be some of your marketing plan sometimes of do what you feel like is appropriate and and don't worry about the trackability it's it's hard it's hard to get over that for sure and yeah we totally do paid marketing and we're on that side of it too but you've got to diversify your marketing you've got to do some mailers sometimes or you've got to do some yard signs sometimes because one not everyone's on social Two, it's just another touch point. It's another reminder that's not on your phone that we're just constantly scrolling through. And it's, it's, a, I, I personally think that that's going to start leading the charge even more, especially as we're hearing in the, in just in this week that, hey, where is the tech boom starting to slow down? Is it starting to get over as we're laying off employees left and right at Meta and Twitter and all these other places? I hope it's coming back. I, I'm, I'm all for, out of home advertising and and that kind of stuff, um, and I think it's nice to not always track things. Um, and then the last thing I'll say on that too is, in 2020, when we were all figuring out what to do in our industry um, from a, a running standpoint of how do we get all these people together, and we can't do a 5,000 person race anymore. The the way that we converted to this alternative race was a multi day event, and um, 
it was a ton of fun. But one of the things we recognized is the way that we had to do it was every half hour, we were allowed to let 25 people into this place that we then shot people out into the community. And there was a, there was tape on the ground to show you where to run is something we were able to do that year that we weren't able to do in any of our other years is to have a conversation with each person. Every time they went out, we did it for a week straight from 7am to 7pm. We were pretty much talking to at least one person every half hour about what they wanted in the running community, what they saw going well, other races that they loved and what they were doing there. And that's a conversation that you can't put ROI on. You can't track that because you can, you can't have that on social media. You can't have that um, on your website or anything. It's, it's a completely different form. And I don't think you can track trust on Instagram. And that was something that we were gaining by having these conversations each time was being able to have that face-to-face, even though you couldn't see our, our mouse at the time because masks that we were, you know, we were having a great conversation of what was wanted, what was going right, what was going wrong. And that meant so much more than tracking what our, our click-through rate was or anything like that. Yeah, well, all of this talk actually... Um makes me think about race ambassador programs, which is sort of the spearhead many races use for grassroots engagement. And everyone I've spoken to about this uh, seems to um, think that it's a very, um, very effective tool for basically, in a way, you know, leveraging your reach within within the, the local community in a nice kind of like grassroots level. Do you guys have one? I couldn't find one on the on the site. Do you do you run an ambassador program? We do not. It was something we've we've discussed and talked about. And um I think the time period at which our race came onto the scene, we were a little bit behind the original versions of that, of when that was coming through at the marathon, we, we had it there um, and, they, and they still are doing that. But I think by the time that we got on the scene, and, and maybe you've seen this a little bit too, is um, people are ambassadors for a lot of things. I think it is great, but you had to be doing it a little bit before we were there. Um, we do a version of it, and I'll explain in a second, but it, um, it just didn't seem like it fit our brand at the time. And it didn't seem like we could do it better than what was already being done so we didn't we didn't jump into it um and, and i do think there are some people out there that are doing it really well and i do see the advantages of it but it just didn't seem to fit kind of our mix our marketing mix at the time but the version of it that we do that's kind of like it is our, our pacers so a lot of races have have pacers for sure um, and they engage with them on race day. We engage with ours throughout the year where we do parties for them and we take them out on running excursions. Uh, we, we've done a lot of fun things with them this past year. We rented a couple boats and took them onto a lake and we brought food out there for them and we brought beer out there for them and just told them thank you. And that was it. And there was nothing else other than like we went on a run on some trails beforehand and then jumped in the lake and it was a good time. Um, and they've kind of naturally become that that version of an ambassador where they're constantly talking about us on social and they're wearing our stuff all the time because we give it to them and they've been our pacer for three, four years at a time. Um, so I think that's the closest version we have. And it's, it's been kind of fun to have them very engaged in our race and you see them, they're noticeable on race day. They are the ones holding up the sign that says we're doing this. You've seen them at the pacer party and a couple different versions of it. And it's, it's almost nice that they're having these engagements without us really asking them to, because they love the race as much as we do, because they see a lot of the back end. They know a lot of what we're doing because they're, they're around all the time. And a lot of them are, have become close friends of ours and come over to our house for dinner and things like that. Um, 
So it's, it's a version of it, but yeah, not fully something we do. And you mentioned earlier that you also do some paid marketing. Could you talk us through a little bit what types of paid marketing you do? Also, what's the objective of it and sort of the time frame over which you do that? Is it is it sort of like later towards race day? Is it earlier? Is it sort of like spread out evenly? What gaps are you trying to fill with that sort of in the overall marketing mix? What are you trying to do with that? Yeah, certainly. Um, so paid marketing, I'd say the first thing that comes to mind for for most people is is social. Of uh, we do we do paid ads on there um, that typically fits in from a brand standpoint of, of imagery and, and copy. It's similar to what we're talking about at that time. So um, thankfully, I have a close friend that has a, a little side company and he does it, and we're constantly talking to him anyway. So it's not. I'll I'll say to to listeners for something like that, it's almost good to have a friend or someone who understands your brand and really understands what you're doing, handle that versus a, a larger company that might be really good at paid marketing, but they don't understand running or they don't understand the community or what you're trying to do because he comes to us with feedback all the time and is like, Hey, that, that what if we changed up the text a little bit like this because of your brand, not because I think it's going to do better, but I think this fits your brand better and things like that. He's, he's just, he's wonderful. Um, so we, from, a, a uh, when we run them in a payment standpoint, we typically um, match our price increases. So we'll, um, if we have a price increase coming up at the end of March, we'll start paying more during that time. Um, and one thing that we've started doing with that, that we've tested and, and again, reach out if you have any feedback on this as well, and, and I'll give email and all that stuff at the end of this. But um, we've played with, do we do a, a large circle around Charlotte? Do we do a 20 mile radius around Charlotte and we market to that? Or do we do a five mile radius around Charlotte and then a five mile radius around Gastonia, which is a little city near us. And then a five mile radius around here. And do we just pinpoint those people more? Um, or going back to the 20 mile idea, is it, is it Charlotte? And then it's Raleigh and then it's Atlanta. Um, and we found with our race that it works doing it with the small kind of neighborhoods around versus going to other cities that are that are close to us because of when we are with Labor Day weekend and and things like that, that it makes more sense for us to kind of stick here in Charlotte of, of getting people to, to stay in town to to hang out with us. Um, so that's that's one side of the paid marketing. The other thing I'll say, something that we invested in this year substantially was PR. Um, and we do a lot with our, our PR team now. Um, we actually found them through Features, the sponsor we were talking about earlier. We were very particular with who we wanted to work with again. Um, so the company that we work with is a bunch of runners and a bunch of hikers and campers and bikers, and they're into craft beer and they're into all the things that we're into. The conversations with them have been just very natural. And again, they give us feedback. They understand what we're trying to do. They, The owner and, and our, our kind of rep came down with their daughter and their husband to volunteer at our race. And they wanted to be there on race day because they're in Asheville, which is just a, uh, about an, uh, two hours away from us. And um, they came to town to see what it was all about and volunteer and spend time with us that entire weekend, which was huge. They've been so amazing for us. We've been on so many great podcasts this year and different articles that like uh, Running Insight of, of how we kind of found each other um, to help us out. Um, and the thing that we've learned about them that we wanted to really make sure we understood before we did it is this is not a one-year deal. This is a three, maybe five-year deal that we need to continue to work with them to really build out what it looks like. We're not going to get on every single website and every single podcast in year one to, to talk about all these fun things we have going on. They need to build relationships and they need to work towards that. So we knew that 
that was going to be a multi-year expense of, of what that looks like. And those conversations have just been different than what normal paid social, I think, looks like. And we've really enjoyed that. Those are, I'd say, the main two forms of like paid marketing outside of outdoor advertising and things like that. But it's those ads on social and then our, our PR team who's just been wonderful. Yeah, PR, I think, is something, another thing that is not particularly high on most race directors' shopping list. Also, because to be fair, to engage an actual agency costs you know, a good amount of money, I guess, that most of the smaller races don't have. But as we mentioned with uh, Meg Treat, it was a PR professional that I had on the podcast um, a few episodes back. There's lots of things that people can do on PR that they can sort of DIY, like reaching out to local media. The most important thing about PR, which is probably why it works so well with, with Around the Crown, is having a good story, basically. Basically having a good brand, knowing what story you want to tell around that. And then, you know, like local media, the press, they will they will scoop that up. If the story is there, they want stories to run. So I, I think it it starts, people seem to sometimes hesitate thinking that, you know, like, oh, why would, you know, like the local newspaper or, or the state radio or whatever be interested in my in my race? But it's their job. It's those people's job to be putting stories out, and races are naturally newsworthy, and they have stories to tell. So it's definitely something that people need to look more into. I want to wrap up this uh, very, very interesting discussion because before you tell us about your future plans, which is also very important to see where the race is heading, <laughs> but I want to wrap up on one other very important thing, which is which is sponsorship, and you seem to be doing that also fantastically well. Every program that we've discussed so far. The Pay What You Can, the First Timers Club, the Stroller Division, even things that we didn't have time to touch on, your training plans, your training tours. like You do lots of things, and there's always a title sponsor or representing sponsor behind that. And, and, and it always feels very natural, as you were saying. Some of the training tours, Brooks is there, which has, you know, like whose brand is also aligned, aligned around inclusivity. So it all seems to fit perfectly well into that. And there was a discussion in our Race Directors Hub group on Facebook the other day about something, and I wanted to have your take on this, which was, so there was a race director there who was saying, you know, I had a, I think it was like a physio or like a sports clinic or something. They were sponsoring my race, which I took to mean that they were giving cash to the race. And then, you know, they realigned their sponsorship program a little bit. And then, you know, Recently, we went to them for renewal and they said that actually, you know, they can't actually do the cash, but they can turn out on the race and they can still provide the free service, etc. And it's always, I guess, a black box for many people looking in to races like Around the Crown. How many of those sponsors come up with actual hard cash? And how many come up with more like in-kind propositions, you know, like giving up product or services um, for the sponsorship? And also, what is your approach to how high you set the bar for accepting those in-kind sponsorships, basically? You know, are you are you the kind of person who looks at really, you know, like the race experience and, oh, these people may not bring up, may not be able to contribute cash, but they can add a lot to the race? Or are you one of those people who says, you know, I have a premium event, it's an awesome event. People need to pay to get into it. Like, what's your, I, I think, I know there's lots of questions there, but like, what's your overall approach to this, to the in-kind and setting the bar and like how you approach those kinds of negotiations? Yeah, all 
awesome questions. And I, I think I wrote down the majority of it and I think I have answers to the majority of it, but feel free to remind me if I do forget some of them. Um, to close up on PR real fast, because I think you brought up some good things. With, you said it was Meg who was on here before? Yeah. Completely agree on the DIY side of things. We, the the hiring a firm was year four. Year one, it was us doing it, us kind of playing with, I'm going to shoot an email or a tweet or a DM to this news source to see if they'll do it. It was getting a partnership with a local news station to have them hopefully, you know, market some more for us, but it was an in-kind sponsorship and there was no cash involved. And it was just a, we'll be your, your go-to media source kind of thing. Um, and then year three, we finally hired like, again, a friend to do it. And it wasn't a ton of, um, time she was able to spend on it because of what we were willing to pay or what we were able to budget. And then year four, it was a full on firm. So it was something we worked towards um, and tested out and, and wanted to see that as it works. So don't think that you need to hire a firm or an agency right away and spend 15, 20, $25,000 on like, know that, yeah, try it yourself and see what you think and then eventually go to it. So I think that's a great point. And um, again, I'll have to tune into that one too. So I now I have Peter and Meg that I need to listen into, um, which I'm excited for. But on to sponsorship, great questions and definitely something I think I learned a lot more about at when I was at the Whitewater Center, a friend of mine, um, Adam Bratton, who was uh, kind of above me there and taught me some things about what does in kind look like or VIK, I think is what we call it, a lot of value in kind versus cash. Um, and, and a lot of times there we use the uh, like a 1.5 multiplier. So if um, you're going to um, offer... Uh, your shirts at a discount, for example, like a recover who does all of our shirts, maybe the, our sponsorship level is, is $5,000 to get to tier one. If you're doing a value in kind, it's gonna have to be at 7,500 um, to, to be at that same level. And, and that's, that's a guideline. It's not a hard line at all. Uh, that's something we've realized. Of, I think I'm getting used to it more. I can't say that I'm a professional at it by any means yet. Cause I, I look up to a lot of good people in, in that realm of marketing. Um, but one of the big things I think we've realized is that it's such a personal relationship and a personal conversation that this is not something that you hand off to any random employee or any random company. Um, we had someone come in and help us with our sponsorship in 2020, and she was absolutely amazing. And unfortunately, then the pandemic came along and we weren't able to, to hold on to her. Um, but it was, it was something that we talked about a lot and we thought about a lot before we handed that off to someone else other than myself or my wife. And she did such a good job of it. Um, and that was the first person we hired was that sponsorship manager because we knew how important it was to talk to the right person at the right company and then also go look for these leads. Um, but when it comes to how high up you're willing to go of a, a tier one or a tier two sponsor, who can give you that value in kind? We don't allow it to be like the, the the very top tier presenting sponsor, like someone like like Truist. They definitely offer value in kind in, in certain ways, um, but we wanted to make sure that there was a, a very large portion of that was cash. But even even at our, we'll call it like our, our tier one and, and put presenting above that, but even at our tier one, one of our main sponsors there is a local Subaru dealership called Williams Subaru. And um, one of the things they were able to offer was a car. Um, and it's like, that's a that's a massive value. Um, and maybe we can't put it at the level of what it's valued at on a, on a ticket price of a forty five thousand dollar Outback or whatever it is, but um, there is some subst substantial power behind that. And and they were willing to to give us a, a new car each year that they're going to rewrap with our branding on it, and then they're going to give us cash on, on that as well. And um, they 
have been one of our top sponsors by far. I mean, they they 100% do not give the level of cash of what another tier one uh, might give. But the yes, they give us the car, but then they also give us just nonstop communication. They are wonderful. They let us do a, a billboard on their um, lot as well. So we actually have two billboards in Charlotte, which is really cool because uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of times car dealerships host billboards because it's a property that these companies can talk to to put a space up. So they have rights to one side of that billboard. So they allow us to be that brand on there with our Subaru that says, William Subaru drives us around the crown. And they're wonderful to help out with other pieces of our marketing throughout the year, like these scavenger hunts. They're giving Subaru branded pieces to then hand out and things like that. Um, so yeah, we we totally do value in kind. And, and a lot of times when we send out our um, sponsorship tiers that we have, we let people know like this is a this is a jumping off point. Um, this is not a hard line. This is a conversation starter, and these numbers can ebb and flow. And um, let's make sure it makes sense for you. And and a lot of times the way ways that they ebb and flow is is like multi year contracts. And what else can we offer to talk about these things? Um, and that's been a big part of it. Is the multi year side of sponsorship is is so helpful to not have a conversation after every race to say, Hey, are you guys coming back? Can we do this thing? Can we do that thing? Because we want to continue talking about you. So how can we do that each year if we have to make sure that we're still friends? So um to have we kind of try to start at a three year relationship. And for us being a new race, we didn't want to go much further than that because we wanted to make sure we'd still be around. I'd I'd hate to say, let's do a five year sponsorship and then a global pandemic come around and shut us down or something like that, which was totally part of the conversation. So um, it's been uh, interesting to learn that. But I think the biggest takeaway that I've had is it's it's our most personal relationship that we have of, of talking to these main players within the company and making sure we're doing right by them. And the ideas that we have for activation match what it is that they want to do um, and match a lot of the things that they want to do. Uh, but I've also found that I absolutely love it. And it's, it's such a passion project for me to talk to these companies and figure out how to activate them appropriately. And I think in a, a former life or, or maybe in a future life, I want to work for some sports agency and have so much fun with how to activate these different companies and what that looks like. It's, it's, it's fun stuff. It is good fun when you're in the zone and you're having those conversations. It's And you're speaking to sponsors who sort of like get you and you get them. I think it could be like, truly truly uh you know like magical stuff yeah because of your background also and your involvement with charlotte marathon before and the other things you've done before you probably got a pretty big head start on where other people may have started with their sponsorship program but i wonder in the earlier days of the race where you know you weren't up to the numbers you're now and you didn't have all the credentials and you know like all the kind of like pedigree that you've developed since then when you were talking to sponsors and they sort of get you, they want to get on board, but maybe you expect them to contribute more. They're not quite there yet. I guess your attitude in that, would it be, yes, let's get those guys on board, start their relationship, fill this lot, let me show them what I can do for them and also what they can do for the race? Or are you more on the side of... Nope, you know, we have a like a like a hard stop on what I need to see from you and I believe in my race and I'm not going to get you in cheap or at a discount or how I might perceive to be a discount kind of thing. Like what would be your attitude in that because it's a bit of a chicken and egg building a sponsorship 
uh, roaster, basically getting people on board? Yeah, good question. I lean towards your your first version of get them in, show them show them what you got, and um, prove to them that that the value is there. But obviously, you can only do that so much. Like you can't have zero cash coming in with sponsorship. One of the things that we recognized early on is we wanted our our revenue to be a 50-50 split, 50% being registration and 50% being sponsorship. We weren't going to be able to do that year one. And we knew that, but we knew it was something we wanted to work towards. And I think that's where the multi-year contracts came in of getting them in the first year of saying, you know what? Product is great this year. Value and kind is great. If you can give something to our runners, that's wonderful. However, I'm gonna we're going to need to talk about a multi-year contract because I, I, I do want to make sure, and I hope you understand that if we've proven our value, Next year, maybe we go to five hundred dollars or a thousand or five thousand, you know, whatever level they're at. Um, I think that's where the multi-year really came in. And if you can explain to them, and and honestly, this, this may not be business savvy or or legal savvy. I don't mean like it's illegal. It's just maybe not the smartest way to do it. But we would tell them pretty early on if it doesn't make sense in year two, let's have that conversation. If if you absolutely need to get out or we didn't deliver on it, and we both agree with that, then. Hey, we get it. If and and also like, if the brand didn't make sense, if we were getting into this because we, we each thought that we were comparable when it comes to sustainability or comparable when it comes to equity in the community, and we didn't live up to that, then yeah, let, let's have that conversation. But it was always an open door. It was always a conversation of what was going on, um, and that's happened in a lot of different ways through different sponsors. Yeah, just knowing that you're not always going to be able to get cash that that first year. But if you're able to have that conversation of, of let's kind of start down this road and, and see if this works, just remember what it was. Um, the other thing that we have done that was honestly truest idea that we have really liked, it seems like something so simple. And it's like one of those things like you kind of kick yourself once you hear it of like, I, that that really makes sense is, is doing it by, I don't want to say by merit, but by your sponsorship grows if you grow. So rather than just putting an escalator in there and saying, we plan to grow by this amount. So this year it's going to be five. Next year it's going to be 7,500. The following year it'll be 10 because we know we're going to grow. You say our base is 5,000. And if we grow by 10%, your sponsorship grows by 10%. So next year you'd have to get to 5,500 or, or you know whatever it might be. Um, and being able to give that to sponsors after Truist gave it to us of uh, this idea of what maybe our sponsorship could look like. We have now taken that to other sponsors and said, hey, look, we don't want you to pay more if, if we're not growing. And we think growing looks like a lot of things. It doesn't always necessarily mean registration. But if we have to measure it by something and something that you can see that's tangible and we were talking about ROI, then let's let's go off of that. And we've had so many sponsors say, gosh, that's refreshing. Like, thank you so much. We, we appreciate that. And that's been a, a good way to at least get the conversation started. Sometimes it doesn't always end that way, be it Truist or other companies, but it at least gets your brain thinking a little bit differently of let's not just charge you more because our prices are going up. Let's let's prove it. And, and, and maybe it is a registration or maybe it's some other way, whatever it is, just know it's worth having that conversation too with a business, a sponsor, a partner of let's make sure we're growing together and you understand where your money's going. Yeah, it's a great way to align basically your incentives and your and your payout and basically say that you'll be getting sort of proportionately the kind of thing that you're getting now if we grow and it gives you the incentive to grow 
what's next for the race? What's next for um, Around the Crown? Where are you guys heading with it? What's your what's your ambition? What's your target for uh, for the years coming up? Gosh, a couple of things come to mind. We're doing some new forms of marketing this year, and I, I, um, it's been working really well for us. So I'd, I'd love to share to see if other people can use it and what their examples are of it or, or how it's working for them. Is One thing we recognized, and I think everyone recognizes, is your biggest price bumps are always on your price increase. So people want to save $5, so they're going to get in, and that's when you get a couple hundred people to register or, or tens of people to register. Um, so we're trying that out on a different level where we're doing limited registration to kick things off. So our actual launch isn't until January, but we're doing these limited registrations that that uh, kind of revolve around our brand in that the 277th day of the year, we did a limited registration because we go on I-277 and we always play with that. So on the 277th day of the year, we did 277 race, race registrations at 2770 and registration opened at 704, which is our area code here. Um, so it was very Charlotte-based. And we sold those 277 registrations in like seven minutes. And it and we've never seen those kind of sales before. Like that's that's massive for us. Um, we might get 250 or, or that's that's probably about as high as we've gone in the past on the day that we open registration because prices are really low and we have that kickoff party. So for us to do that amount, and, and that's not including kids races or virtual entries, it worked really, really well for us. And it's a way for us to kind of combat what the pandemic did to our numbers. I mean, our, our numbers went way down and I'm sure a lot of people have seen that. And we're coming back and, and this year was an amazing year of growth, but it's still not at the level that we expected to be at in year four when we didn't know a global pandemic was coming and all that. So it's one way for us to kind of get back um, some of our registration numbers. So we're doing it again on November 30th because it's 277 days away from race day and doing the same thing again. Um, so I think that's some of the future of our marketing is looking at I don't want to call it like scarcity marketing, but it's it's something like that. It's something of that degree. And the the one that I've kind of amounted it to, but a, a friendlier version is how Ironman does some of their registrations. And I don't necessarily like to look to them too much for how they do things. Cause I, I think um, I'd put them in that boat of like, man, you pay a lot for, for something that I'm not sure of the value is totally there on some of their stuff. And I, I love what they do and I, I have no hard feelings towards them. I just, that price point is sometimes hard to wrap my head around, but they do it based on numbers of the first 250 people get it for X price. And then the next 250 get it for this. So it's never a, a date price increase. It's, it's a number price increase. Like an auction sort of like an auction. Yeah. Maybe it's auction based marketing. Maybe that's what we'll call it. So we're trying that out and we may do different versions of that along the way, but it's working really well for us. And I, I think it could be a, a, a tactic for people to use in, in business for marketing to, to, to get your numbers back to what they were pre pandemic. Um, so that's definitely some of the future of, of looking at different versions of marketing. I think other things in the future, um, obviously looking to grow um, and, and um, numbers wise, not into new cities. We get that asked a lot of like, hey, are you going to go to Raleigh or Chattanooga or some other city and do another version of this? And I think this race works well for us because we love Charlotte and that's our passion. And we're not going to be able to take this passion and put that into Atlanta or Roanoke or some other city or some other country. And I think... We're looking at what what could a series of Around the Crown look like within Charlotte? So what if you ran physically around the crown at different races that are around the crown, meaning in different spots within Charlotte, but then built up to our race in September? So we just acquired our second race last year. It's a race that we've volunteered at for the last decade or so um, called the Nota 5K. That's before our race. We're looking at other races that are already existing in the community and how could we either acquire them or, or, or help build them up 
um, and kind of bring them into the fold of this idea of uh, working towards a 10K um, that are, are, are either already core to the neighborhood that they're in or um, have the potential to grow into that. And then I think the second part of that is uh, we talk about inclusivity and we talk about, um, so I know one of the things we didn't get into, but you can look at it on our website is our truest training tours where we go into different parts of the city that you don't typically have a race in. Um, and we, we set up a, a run there or just a community event. It could be a barbecue. Um, and then we, we have walking with it. That's not even, so it's not even running, but um, potentially looking at some of these areas to, to host a race in if the neighborhood will have us and, and doing some races in different parts of the city that don't typically have races in them. And, and what could that look like to bring as a part of around the crown? I think that's part of the future. And then I think the next part would be, I kind of want to get back to the trail running side of things a little bit. I, I, I still do it a lot personally, and I, I miss that side of it. And I just got done um, another uh, trail race and looking at bringing something like that to, to Charlotte at, a, at a, a level of where around the crown is of, of bringing in some larger sponsors and looking at what, it, what, what does it take to bring the elite running scene to the East coast? Cause right now in, in the United States, everything is West coast. Everything is Colorado because that's where the big mountains are. Or it's, it's Arizona or, or Utah or California. And you've got a couple on the East coast that I think are doing it really well, but I would love to, I would love to be a part of that and hopefully grow those races as well that are here um, in the mountains of North Carolina and the mountains of Georgia. We have some great races here, but I still think the East coast deserves a little bit brighter spotlight than what we're getting. Um, Cause I think there's some great races out here and I hope that we can join that that band if you will so i think that's the future beyond that i think there's there's a chance of non-running related things involved with around the crown because we our involvement is so much in charlotte that what does it look like to do something else that that maybe has a running focus like this is not it but if it's a coffee shop that happens to do running related things at it that there's a a water fountain outside and we have group runs every morning at 4 a.m for the people that our parents and need to get up at that time to go running, but they want someone to run with. Um, I think it's just going to be a running focus piece to other things. Really. I think that's kind of the future of, of where we're headed. It'll be fun. Yeah. Which brings us uh, in a nice circle back to what I was saying when we started out that chat, which is that it's remarkable how many things, and I'm thinking business-wise mostly, because I think it's obvious what you're doing for the community, but like how many things business-wise you can do with a race as a platform and around a race, which is which hopefully we we managed to um, to share with people today. Brian, I want to thank you very very much for your time today. I'm guessing the sun might probably be coming up around this time in your in your part of the world. There you go. It is. Yep. <laughs> Starting your day. I want to thank you very much. I think I'm I'm, I'm hoping lots of our uh, listeners got a a bunch of new ideas uh, on the back of this. If people want to maybe reach out, have a chat, say hi, ask a question, where can they find you? First, thank you so much for having me, Panos. This was this is a blast. I um I love chatting about running, and it's fun to share that again. I, we've said it a couple times, but it's just. I really appreciate it. Uh, so thank you. And completely agree on the on the platform side of things of, of where can you take this thing that maybe is a, a one day a year event, but it is a platform to do something greater in your city and, and for your community and things like that. So thank you again. It was this is this is awesome and we absolutely love it. Uh, our website is around the crown 10k.com or atc10k.com. You can find me there. Uh Instagram, I'm I'm on there a lot just because uh I don't know, I somewhat have to be enjoyed on there. So at around the crown 10k our, our twitter handle is atc 10k um, or my personal one is at b mr 06 or that's my first initial and then last name 
And then my email, please feel free to reach out is just brian, B-R-I-A-N at A-T-C 10K. And please reach out with any questions or gosh, if you have suggestions or ideas of what we've talked about, I, I, I love hearing that kind of stuff. And I feel like I'm, I'm on, I used to be on the Facebook group for Race Director HQ more back in like 2019, 2020. And then I think kids came along and I just, I'm not able to be on as much more, but it makes me want to jump back on there a little bit more and see kind of what's going on. I'm excited to listen to uh, Meg and Peter as well. It'll be fun. And then future guests of, of races that you have on here of just kind of talking about the overall realm of different, how do you take all these different little pieces, put it together and make this brand and this, this mission and this vision. It's, it's exciting, but yeah, thank you so much, Panos. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks again, Brian. It was a pleasure having you on and thank you very much to everyone uh, listening in and we'll see you all on our next podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on Around the Crown 10K with co-founder and race director Brian Mister. You can find more resources on anything and everything related to race directing on our website, racedirectorshq.com. You can also share your thoughts about some of the things discussed in today's episode or anything else in our Facebook group, Race Directors Hub. Many thanks again to our awesome podcast sponsor, Run Signup, for sponsoring today's episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite player and check out our podcast back catalog for more great content like this. Until our next episode, take care and keep putting on amazing races.